0: And now save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Tonight, I will be reading two stories from Edith Nesbit's Beautiful Stories from Shakespeare, Hamlet and the Merchant of Venice. So lie down, close your eyes, and let me read you a story. Hamlet Hamlet was the only son of the King of Denmark. He loved his father and mother dearly, and was happy in the love of a sweet lady named Ophelia. Her father, Polonius, was the king's chamberlain. While Hamlet was away studying at Wittenberg, his father died. Young Hamlet hastened home in great grief to hear that a serpent had stung the king and that he was dead. The young prince loved his father so tenderly that you may judge what he felt when he found that the queen, before yet the king had been laid in the ground a month, had determined to marry again and to marry the dead king's brother. Hamlet refused to put off mourning for the wedding. It is not only the black I wear on my body, he said, that proves my loss. I wear mourning in my heart for my dead father. His son at least remembers him, and grieves still. Then said Claudius, the king's brother, This grief is unreasonable. Of course you must sorrow at the loss of your father, but... Ah, said Hamlet bitterly, I cannot in one little month forget those I love. With that, the Queen and Claudius left him to make merry over their wedding, forgetting the poor good king who had been so kind to them both. And Hamlet, left alone, began to wonder and to question as to what he ought to do for he could not believe the story about the snakebite. It seemed to him all too plain that the wicked Claudius had killed the king so as to get the crown and marry the queen. Yet he had no proof and could not accuse Claudius. And while he was thus thinking came Horatio, a fellow student of his from Wittenberg. What brought you here? asked Hamlet when he had greeted his friend kindly. I came, my lord, to see your father's funeral. I think it was to see my mother's wedding, said Hamlet bitterly. My father, we shall not look upon his like again. My lord, answered Horatio, I think I saw him yesternight. Then, while Hamlet listened in surprise, Horatio told how he, with two gentlemen of the guard, had seen the king's ghost on the battlements. Hamlet went that night, and true enough, at midnight, the ghost of the king, in the armor he had been wont to wear, appeared on the battlements in the chill moonlight. Hamlet was a brave youth. Instead of running away from the ghost, he spoke to it, and when it beckoned, he followed it to a quiet place, and there the ghost told him that what he had suspected was true. The wicked Claudius had indeed killed his good brother the king by dripping poison into his air as he slept in his orchard in the afternoon. And you, said the ghost, must avenge this cruel murder on my wicked brother. But do nothing against the queen, for I have loved her, and she is your mother. Remember me. And seeing the morning approach, the ghost vanished. Now, said Hamlet, there's nothing left but revenge. Remember thee, I will remember nothing else. Books, pleasure, youth, let all go. And your commands alone live on in my brain. So when his friends came back, he made them swear to keep the secret of the ghost. And then went in from the battlements, now grey with mingled dawn and moonlight, to think how he might best avenge his murdered father. The shock of seeing and hearing his father's ghost made him feel almost mad and for fear that his uncle might notice that he was not himself, he determined to hide his mad, longing for revenge under pretended madness in other matters. And when he met Ophelia, who loved him and to whom he had given gifts and letters and many loving words, he behaved so wildly to her that she could not but think him mad. For she loved him so that she could not believe he would be as cruel as this, unless he were quite mad. So she told her father, and showed him a pretty letter from Hamlet. And in the letter was much folly, and this pretty verse. Doubt that the stars are fire, doubt that the sun doth move, doubt truth to be a liar, but never doubt I love and from that time, everyone believed that the cause of Hamlet's supposed madness was love. Poor Hamlet was very unhappy. He longed to obey his father's ghost, and yet he was too gentle and kindly to wish to kill another man, even his father's murderer. And sometimes he wondered whether, after all, the ghost spoke truly. Just at this time, some actors came to the court and Hamlet ordered them to perform a certain play before the king and queen. Now, this play was the story of a man who'd been murdered in his garden by a near relation, who afterwards married the dead man's wife. You may imagine the feelings of the wicked king as he sat on his throne with the queen beside him and all his court around, and saw, acted on the stage, the very wickedness that he had done himself. And when, in the play, The wicked relation poured poison into the ear of the sleeping man. The wicked Claudius suddenly rose and staggered from the room, the queen and others following. Then said Hamlet to his friends, Now I am sure the ghost spoke true, for if Claudius had not done this murder, he could not have been so distressed to see it in a play. Now the queen sent for Hamlet, by the king's desire, to scold him for his conduct during the play. And for other matters, and Claudius, wishing to know exactly what happened, told old Polonius to hide himself behind the hangings in the queen's room. And as they talked, the queen got frightened at Hamlet's rough, strange words and cried for help, and Polonius behind the curtain cried out too. Hamlet, thinking it was the king who was hidden there, thrust with his sword at the hangings and killed not the king, but poor old Polonius. So now Hamlet had offended his uncle and his mother, and by bad hap killed his true love's father. Oh, what a rash and bloody deed is this, cried the queen. And Hamlet answered bitterly, almost as bad as to kill a king and marry his brother. Then Hamlet told the queen plainly all his thoughts and how he knew of the murder, and begged her at least, to have no more friendship or kindness of the base Claudius who had killed the good king. And as they spoke, the king's ghost again appeared before Hamlet, but the queen could not see it. So when the ghost had gone, they parted. When the queen told Claudius what had passed and how Polonius was dead, he said, This shows plainly that Hamlet is mad, and since he has killed the chancellor, it is for his own safety that we must carry out our plan and send him away to England. So Hamlet was sent, under charge of two courtiers who served the king, and these bore letters to the English court requiring that Hamlet should be put to death. But Hamlet had a good sense to get at these letters, and put in others instead, with the names of the two courtiers who were so ready to betray him. Then, as the vessel went to England, Hamlet escaped on board a pirate ship, and the two wicked courtiers left him to his fate and went on meet theirs. Hamlet hurried home, but in the meantime a dreadful thing had happened. Poor pretty Ophelia, having lost her lover and her father, lost her wits too, and went in sad madness about the court, with straws and weeds and flowers in her hair, singing strange scraps of songs, and talking poor foolish pretty talk with no heart of meaning to it. And one day, coming to a stream where willows grew, she tried to hang a flowery garland on a willow, and fell into the water with all her flowers, and so died. And Hamlet had loved her, though his plan of seeming madness had made him hide it. And when he came back, he found king and queen and the court, weeping at the funeral of his dear love and lady. Ophelia's brother Laertes had also just come to court to ask justice for the death of his father, old Polonius, and now, wild with grief, he leaped into his sister's grave to clasp her in his arms once more. I loved her more than forty thousand brothers, cried Hamlet, and leapt into the grave after him, and they fought till they were parted. Afterwards, Hamlet begged Laertes to forgive him. I could not bear, he said, that any even a brother, should seem to love her more than I. But the wicked Claudius would not let them be friends. He told Laertes how Hamlet had killed old Polonius, and between them they made a plot to slay Hamlet by treachery. Laertes challenged him to a fencing match, and all the court were present. Hamlet had the blunt foil always used in fencing, and Laertes had prepared for himself a sword, sharp, and tipped with poison. And the wicked king had made ready a bowl of poisoned wine, which he meant to give poor Hamlet, when he would grow warm with the sword play and should call for drink. So Laertes and Hamlet fought, and Laertes, after some fencing, gave Hamlet a sharp sword thrust. Hamlet, angry at this treachery, for they had been fencing, not as men fight, but as they play, closed with Laertes in a struggle. Both dropped their swords, and when they picked them up again, Hamlet, without noticing it, had exchanged his own blunt sword for Laertes' sharp and poisoned one. And with one thrust of it, he pierced Laertes, who fell dead by his own treachery. At this moment, the queen cried out, The drink, the drink. O my dear Hamlet, I am poisoned. She had drunk of the poisoned bowl the king had prepared for Hamlet, and the king saw the queen, whom, wicked as he was, he really loved, fall dead by his means. Then, Ophelia being dead, and Polonius, and the queen, and Laertes, and the two courtiers who had been sent to England, Hamlet at last found courage to do the ghost's bidding and avenge his father's murder. Which, if he had braced up his heart to do long before, All these lives would have been spared, and none would have suffered, but this wicked king, who well deserved to die. Hamlet, his heart at last being great enough to do the deed he ought, turned the poisoned sword on the false king. Then Venom, do thy work, he cried, and the king died. So Hamlet in the end kept the promise he had made his father and all being now accomplished, he himself died. And those who stood by saw him die with prayers and tears, for his friends and his people loved him with their whole hearts. Thus ends the tragic tale of Hamlet, Prince of Denmark. The Merchant of Venice Antonio was a rich and prosperous merchant of Venice. His ships were on nearly every sea, and he traded with Portugal, with Mexico, with England, and with India. Although proud of his riches, he was very generous with them and delighted to use them in relieving the wants of his friends, among whom his relation Bassanio held the first place. Now, Bassanio was reckless. And extravagant, and finding that he had not only come to the end of his fortune, but was also unable to pay his creditors, went to Antonio for further help. To you, Antonio, he said, I owe the most in money and in love, and I have thought of a plan to pay everything I owe if you will but help me. Say what I can do, and it shall be done, answered his friend. Then said Pisanio, And Belmont is a lady richly left, and from all quarters of the globe renowned suitors come to woo her, not only because she is rich, but because she is beautiful and good as well. She looked on me with such favor when last we met, that I feel sure that I should win her away from all her rivals, had I but the means to go to Belmont, where she lives. All my fortunes, said Antonio, are at sea, and so I have no ready money but luckily my credit is good in Venice and I will borrow for you what you need. There was living in Venice at this time a rich moneylender named Shylock. Antonio despised and disliked this man very much and treated him with the greatest harshness and scorn. He would thrust him like a cur over his threshold and would even spit on him. Shylock submitted to all these indignities with a patient shrug. But deep in his heart, he cherished a desire for revenge on the rich, smug merchant. For Antonio both hurt his pride and injured his business. But for him, thought Shylock, I should be richer by half a million ducats. On the marketplace and wherever he can, he denounces the rate of interest I charge, and worse than that, he lends out money freely. So when Bassanio came to him to ask for a loan of three thousand ducats to Antonio for three months, Sherlock hid his hatred, and turning to Antonio said, harshly as you have treated me, I would be friends with you and have your love. So I will lend you the money and charge you no interest, but just for fun. You shall sign a bond in which it will be agreed that if you do not repay me in three months' time, then I shall have the right to a pound of your flesh to be cut from what part of your body I choose. No, cried Bassanio to his friend. "you shall run no such risk for me. Why, fear not, said Antonio. My ships will be home a month before the time. I will sign the bond. Thus Bassanio was furnished with the means to go to Belmont there to woo the lovely Portia. The very night he started, the moneylender's pretty daughter, Jessica, ran away from her father's house with her lover and she took with her from her father's hoards some bags of ducats and precious stones. Shylock's grief and anger were terrible to see. His love for her changed to hate. I would she were dead at my feet and the jewels in her ear, he cried. His only comfort now was in hearing of the serious losses which had befallen Antonio, some of whose ships were wrecked. Let him look to his bond, said Shylock let him look to his bond. Meanwhile, Bassanio had reached Belmont and had visited the fair Portia. He found, as he had told Antonio, that the rumour of her wealth and beauty had drawn to her suitors from far and near. But to all of them, Portia had but one reply. She would only accept that suitor who would pledge himself to abide by the terms of her father's will. These were conditions that frightened away many an ardent were. For he who would win Portia's heart and hand had to guess which of three boxes held her portrait. If he guessed right, then Portia would be his bride. If wrong, then he was bound by oath never to reveal which box he chose, never to marry, and to go away at once. The boxes were of gold, silver, and lead. The gold one bore this inscription, who chooseth me shall gain what many men desire. The silver one had this, who chooseth me shall get as much as he deserves. While on the lead one were these words, who chooseth me must give and hazard all he hath. The Prince of Morocco was among the first to submit to this test. He chose the gold box for he said neither base lead nor silver could contain her pitcher. So he chose the gold box and found inside the likeness of what many men desire, death. After him came the haughty Prince of Aragon, and saying, Let me have what I deserve, surely I deserve the lady. He chose the silver one, and found inside a fool's head. Did I deserve no more than a fool's head? he cried. At last came Bassanio, and Portia would have delayed him from making his choice from very fear of his choosing wrong, for she loved him dearly, even as he loved her. But, said Bassanio, let me choose at once, for, as I am, I live upon the rack. Then Portia bade her servants to bring music and play while her gallant lover made his choice, and Bassanio took the oath and walked up to the boxes the musicians playing softly the while. Mere outward show, he said, is to be despised. The world is still deceived with ornament, and so no gaudy gold or shining silver for me. I choose the lead box. Joy be the consequence. And opening it, he found fair Portia's portrait inside, and he turned to her and asked if it were true that she was his. Yes, said Portia, I am yours and this house is yours, and with them I give you this ring from which you must never part. And Bassanio, saying that he could hardly speak for joy, found words to swear that he would never part with the ring while he lived. Then suddenly all his happiness was dashed with sorrow, for messengers came from Venice to tell him that Antonio was ruined, and that Shylock demanded from the duke the fulfilment of the bond under which he was entitled to a pound of the merchant's flesh. Portia was as grieved as Bassanio to hear of the danger which threatened his friend. First, she said, take me to church and make me your wife, and then go to Venice at once to help your friend. You shall take with you money enough to pay his debt twenty times over. For when her newly made husband had gone, Portia went after him, and arrived in Venice disguised as a lawyer, and with an introduction from a celebrated lawyer, Bellario, whom the Duke of Venice had called in to decide the legal questions raised by Shallock's claim to a pound of Antonio's flesh. When the court met, Bassanio offered Shallock twice the money borrowed if he would withdraw his claim. But the moneylender's only answer was, if every ducat in 6,000 ducats were in six parts and every part a ducat, I would not draw them. I would have my bond. It was then that Portia arrived in her disguise, and not even her own husband knew her. The Duke gave her welcome an account of the great Valario's introduction, and left the settlement of the case to her. Then in noble words she bade Shylock have mercy, but he was deaf to her entreaties. I will have the pound of flesh, was his reply. What have you to say? asked Portia of the merchant. But little, he answered. I am armed and well prepared. The court awards you a pound of Antonio's flesh, said Portia, to the moneylender. Most righteous judge, cried Sherlock, a sentence. Come, prepare. Tarry a little. This bond gives you no right to Antonio's blood, only to his flesh. If then you spill a drop of his blood, all your property will be forfeited to the state such is the law. And Shylock, in his fear, said, Then I will take Bassanio's offer. No, said Portia sternly, you shall have nothing but your bond. Take your pound of flesh, but remember that if you take more or less, even by the weight of a hair, you will lose your property and your life. Shylock now grew very much frightened. Give me my three thousand ducats that I lent him, let him go. Bassanio would have paid it to him, but said Portia, no, he shall have nothing but his bond. You, a foreigner, she added, have sought to take the life of a Venetian citizen, and thus by the Venetian law your life and goods are forfeited. Down, therefore, and beg mercy of the duke. Thus were the tables turned, and no mercy would have been shown to Shylock had it not been for Antonio. As it was, the moneylender forfeited half his fortune to the state and he had to settle the other half on his daughter's husband and with this he had to be content. Bassanio, in his gratitude to the clever lawyer, was induced to part with the ring his wife had given him and with which he had promised never to part. And when on his return to Belmont he confessed as much to Portia, she seemed very angry and vowed she would not be friends with him until she had a ring again but at last she told him that it was she who, in the disguise of the lawyer, had saved his friend's life and got the ring from him. So Bassanio was forgiven and made happier than ever to know how rich a prize he had drawn in the lottery of the boxes. Good night.